Hello, Cachimbonas. I'm very excited today to have the Pima County recorder-elect Gabriela Casares-Kelly here to talk a bit about, well, what the county recorder is and what they do and the story of how she got here and kind of some of her previous work prior to running. But before we start, I just wanted to welcome you onto the podcast and ask how you are. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm doing so great. <laughs> That's so great to hear. Um, so the county recorder keeps public records and is in charge of voter registration and early voting. Yes. What What else is within the county recorder's authority? So that's that's essentially it. So it's not it hasn't been a very flashy office um, in the past. Um, it oversees the voter registration, early voting, and then the mm-hmm. document recording for the county. So a lot of people what ask is that? me a lot of people ask me about the document recording. Yeah, that is if you would like to maintain a document to stand the test of time. So something like a home deed or adoption records. Mm. Imagine, you know, a house fire. What would happen uh, with all of your documents? You would still need those secured in some way. And the recorder's office um, has it so that you can uh, record those items digitally and and keep them kind of forever. They're, they're, They're there. Oh, that's interesting. So is it like, it's like an archive of the personal information of Pima County residents? Yeah, it can be. It's not normally. Like in order for you to, you have to submit like those adoption records, you have to submit a marriage certificate or a divorce mm-hmm. decree. And people who are doing that is generally has to do with, with a property and the transfer of property and that type of thing. And so um, mm-hmm. one of the mm-hmm. ways that we've mm-hmm. seen it is that the discharge papers for military service can also be kept that way. So it just it really depends. But yeah, I think that, mm. and that's something in Pima County that we'd love to expand uh, to be able to, you know, record our living history right now. Mm-hmm. For sure. So on that note, what made you want to run for county recorder and what important changes do you think can be made to improve our electoral process through the office or other changes that can be made? Like we were just talking about uh, increasing the amount of things that are recorded. Right. So I mostly got interested in this office because I started registering voters Um I started out by registering voters on the Thonotham Nation um, at Thonotham Community College. It's a small tribal community college. Um, it's public institution, so we had Native students and non-Native students. And we thought we could register folks in a couple of afternoons by just setting up a table in the student lounge. And mm-hmm. we started encountering so many barriers to voter registration alone that it ended up taking us several months. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) And so what we were finding was that, you know, students or or voters who lived in rural communities Mm -hmm. um, and in tribal communities were really struggling with um, their their physical addresses. Mm -hmm. On the top of a voter registration form, it asks for a physical address. Um, But somebody who lives in a rural community most often uses a PO box or an Mm -hmm. HCO1 box. And so they would have a hard time. They would literally go to fill out the form and they would say, what, what should I put here? And so it was that level of communication that we were recognizing was an issue. Mm -hmm. We started also encountering so many folks because we were in, I was registering um, in a tribal community, people who were unsure of the difference between a tribal election, which is conducted by Mm. the tribe, and also a local, state, and federal election, which was conducted by Pima County. Mm. Uh, there's mm-hmm. registration processes for both. <laughs> They're both different. Right. Um, and so when you would ask somebody, are you registered to vote? They wouldn't know how to answer that question. I see. We would also encounter, because I was on a, on a community college campus, so many students who were struggling because they were displaced. So young people um, who move around frequently and college mm-hmm. students in particular um, we would see a lot of students who maybe 
maybe they were from California and they have the driver's license in California and they moved to, to Arizona just for school. And while they were here, their parents moved from California to New York. And so that student wouldn't have any type of documentation tying them to Arizona or to California or to New York. Um, and so they would have a real problem with, well, where do I, where do I register to vote and how do I actually get this ballot? So we were recognizing. Mm -hmm. So this is particularly a problem for transient populations? Yeah, I think so. That's something that transient, <laughs> young, uh, working class, uh, right mm -hmm. now we're seeing a really huge impact, even with COVID. If you think about how many people have been displaced because of COVID, how many people are having to move because of job loss um, or eviction, we're seeing such an increase mm -hmm. um, in that type of movement and mobility, mm -hmm. um, which is impacting someone's ability to, to simply register to vote. So it's a very huge issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, can you explain the physical address issue a bit more? Because if someone has a P.O. box that is in a physical location, why does that not satisfy the registration requirements? So you will vote depending on uh, where you live because that it, it's impacted by the amount of you know, taxes that you're taxed or your representation, who is actually representing you in that area. And so you should be voting where you sleep uh, every day, where, where your head hits the pillow. Mm -hmm. um, well, mm -hmm. in a, with a P.O. box, anybody can have a, um, a P.O. box from anywhere, so you can legally live in New York and you could have a P.O. box in Arizona. That doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. um, coincide with, you know, where you live. Um, but it but how often mean... does that happen, though? Because that kind of seems like a, like a hypothetical problem. But yeah. don't most people have P.O. boxes near where they live? Well, so like, let's say, for example, the Thonotham Nation. The Thonotham Nation is the size of Connecticut. Most people don't know it's there. Wow. The, majority, <laughs> the majority, and that is the nation that I'm from. I grew up on that reservation, um, which mm -hmm. the majority of it sits within Pima County. Um, I grew up, mm -hmm. so I live in oh, Tucson, but I grew up about two and a half hours southwest of Tucson. Uh, mm -hmm. So just to get to Tucson, it would take my, my family two and a half hours. <laughs> and yeah, um, right. there are... HCO1 boxes throughout the nation, mm -hmm. uh, which are rural um, boxes, which people have to drive to generally. Um, but there is one post office on the entire Thonotham nation. So mm. there's only one place where you can go uh, with, with PO boxes and you can also, you know, talk to a post office worker. Uh, so if you had a voter registration form, uh, that that's a, an issue that we've seen. When you think about where you can go to pick up a voter registration form, most people would say, well, at the motor vehicle mm -hmm. division, at the public library, or at a post mm -hmm. office, or you know. And when you think about that, mm -hmm. the lack of those those uh, uh, structures that means that people are less likely to be able to register to vote. Um, so that's an issue. Um, as far as the right. PO boxes, a lot of times, um, this is a really, really complicated issue. And I'm definitely, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely in support of people being able to utilize PO boxes. So I want to make that right. very clear. Like I definitely okay, yeah. support that. Um, so not saying, <laughs> not saying that would be completely devastating for so many people. And, and that has been yeah. on the table. Um, there have been legislation mm. uh, here in Arizona and throughout the country. We all know about Standing mm -hmm. Rock. The community of Standing Rock, uh, they changed their legislation the year after um, Standing Rock occurred oh, really? that you had to have a physical address in order to vote. Mm. It was like a specifically a disenfranchisement right. tactic. Right. It's really blatant. Yeah. Um, and so I'm definitely in support of, of having the P.O. boxes um, and being able to, to send mail through the P.O. boxes. Mm -hmm. um, but they are very far and they can be very far. And so if you think about the 
community of cells, Arizona, which is at the heart of the Thonotham Nation, again, the size of Connecticut, people are still mm-hmm. utilizing that, but they may have to drive from different parts of the Thonotham Nation to pick up their mail. Mm-hmm. It might be an hour. <laughs> and so, you know, for, for somebody, you know, who is driving back and forth, their representation may be impacted um, by that, by that mobility. And on the local level? On the, yeah, on the local level. So, um, so for yeah. example, um, I know a lot of people who live uh, in Tucson but work on the Thonato Nation. Mm. And so I used mm-hmm. to do that. I used to drive, used to commute. There was a, a work shuttle that I would ride every single day. Um, but there, there's a lot of people mm. who commute daily who use the P.O. Box in cells mm-hmm. because it's convenient. They can go and check their mail at lunchtime, you know, in the middle of their workday mm. uh, or right after work mm-hmm. or whatever but who live here in Tucson. So that's, that's why it would, you know, that's why they try to um, request a physical address. It's a simple, it's a simple solution. Um, I mm-hmm. often talk about non-standard um, addresses and I, I would talk about that and I assumed mm-hmm. that everybody understood what that meant. But unless you really understand, unless you really hear what an address sounds like, you're not going to understand. So the Thonotham Community College, where I used to work, the address is Highway 86, mm-hmm. milepost 125 and a half. That is, that is physically, and that is because mm-hmm. it is right off the highway. The address where I grew up mm-hmm. and the home that I grew up in, there's literally no way for me to tell you <laughs> other than saying, and this is the whole thing, um, go south on Highway 86 um, on to Indian Route 21, drive into Pacinimo community, mm-hmm. turn right at the red fence, go down the dirt road, take the Y to the left, <laughs> and my house is to the left of the big tree. That's literally the address of, of mm. my home. And so, you right. know, it sounds absurd, right. but when you give somebody a form and you say, put your physical address, people are really not going to know how to fill out that form. Like, uh, do I talk about the big tree? Right. This is an official form. Well, you know, what do I do? How do I, do I talk about the red fence? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and there's also an area that asks if you have a physical address, please draw a map of where your home is located. And for people who live on the Thonotham Nation, size of Connecticut, they're thinking to myself, they're thinking to themselves, uh, there's no official, you know, name of the road by the red fence. How do I draw this? <laughs> do I draw the red fence? Do I draw the big tree? Um, right. <laughs> and that's more for, um, you know, like, let's say that you um, are a houseless person and maybe live behind the food city on Sixth right. and Aho. That would be more... Um, right. of a need in that area. But in the Thonotham Nation, all you would have to say is, I live in the community of the cinema. There you go. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but because there hasn't been that communication and there hasn't been that outreach and education, a lot of times people simply don't know that. And there, it's very difficult for them to obtain that information. Right. Yeah, it sounds like there's like a education gap yes. and there hasn't been any or there hasn't been sufficient work done on the part of those who uphold the electoral process to include folks who live on the reservation to understand these things. Right. Exactly. That's exactly the situation. I 
was told that it's important for people interested in running for public office to have a quote-unquote rainy day fund because grassroots campaigning in particular is a full-time job. Do, <laughs> do you agree? And could you share how you finance your run and why you've been particularly transparent about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've been a working class candidate, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I can't tell you how how much it is a struggle to be a candidate. When mm-hmm. I first started running, so I started running in November of 2019. So I had been wow. running for one whole year, 12 right. whole months that I had been running. And for the first... Um, For the first part of it, I was still working. I was a um, college and career readiness counselor at a high school, Mm -hmm. and I would be juggling (laughs) my job with running for office. And so sometimes there was a couple of times where I had to miss like an opportunity to speak to voters because I was busy uh, you know, with parent-teacher conferences, or we had a free right. application for federal student aid FAFSA, you know, workshop night or something. And yeah, I would, you had your job. Yeah, I had my job. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that was that was the situation. Um, I'm a working class uh, candidate. Uh, my my husband and I are we're a two income household. We have two children. Mm-hmm. Um, they just started. Uh, they're taking a little bit of a break from the University of Arizona, but, you mm. know, we have college students. We have a house and two cars and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I don't have, I don't have wealthy parents, mm-hmm. uh, which is usually how other people finance. <laughs> they usually finance their, um, right. their campaigns with, you know, family money or their own personal money. They're independently wealthy. Um, mm-hmm. And I simply wasn't able to do that. And right. so um, I started out my campaign by uh, creating a an Act Blue uh, account, mm-hmm. and I asked people to donate. What is Act Blue? Act Blue actually. is actually a um, democratic fundraising platform uh, okay. where they give you links so that you can. Um, so that people can donate to your campaign. And then they also provide the backdoor um, information because every single dollar that comes in has to be reported. And so um, you have to collect certain, Mm. you know, people's information. You have to um, even find out where they work. So like, say, for example, I were to get a- If someone donates? Yeah. So like, if I were to get- Well, I guess, oh, right. No, but that's good. We want (laughs) transparency so we can see who's funding politicians, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So we do want to know this information um, because if somebody were to max out, the maximum donation is six thousand. I think it's six thousand four hundred and fifty dollars. Um, so if somebody were to send that, but it was maybe from like fossil right. fuel money, and you had taken a pledge that you wouldn't accept money from a fossil fuel industry. Uh, (laughs) We need to know. Um, But so I started out by just asking for small donations, $5, $20, you know, whatever people could give. Um, And we, what we ended up doing, and it was so amazing. We had over 3000 individual donors um, throughout my entire campaign which was small dollar uh, donations, $5, $10. We had a couple of $1, mm. $2. Um, and then sometimes mm-hmm. there would be larger ones sprinkled in. But for the most part, I think our average donation was about $40, which is really amazing. And we were able to fund our entire campaign um, almost all through um, through individual donations. And then we also received some from... Um, Maybe some small um, local packs, like uh, Congressman Grijalva's. Uh, he has a pack, and, and they sent us like five hundred dollars. Oh, wow. um, the Thonot Nation sent us um, quite a bit of money, actually, and then um, uh, Planned Parenthood and Arizona List and other um, other organizations that promote Democratic uh, candidates mm. to run for office. Just a few. And so, but the majority of it was, were these $5, $10 donations, um, which is really amazing. And it did come up within my campaign that 
Um, so I was working for um, all the way up until mm-hmm. June. And then in the month of July, I simply didn't have a single uh, paycheck coming in. It's one of the busiest times um, mm. for the campaign. Uh, but from June to the end of July, you know, mm-hmm. I had nothing coming in. It was just my, we were just surviving off my husband's mm-hmm. uh, paycheck and then whatever we had squirreled away. But August 4th, a few days into August, was my primary election. And the primary election, you either win or you lose. Right. You're in or you're out. And so I won, yes. which was amazing. But then it was like, oh, you're going to have to survive now mm. for six more months mm. without a paycheck. Um, and so in the month of August, um, after talking with um, experts in the field and with my team, like really, really deliberating a lot about, about my, my issue because I didn't have this independent source of income. You know, I still have to pay my mortgage. I still have to pay, you know, for food and everything else that comes with life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was doing an extraordinary amount of work. So I was doing all of my own comms and I was um, presenting Mm -hmm. everywhere and uh, writing, constantly writing emails and um, all kinds of things, talking to the press and really all of these things. And so when I was really thinking about like, well, what can I do to, to bring in income? My original plan had been to be a, um, a substitute teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would be a substitute teacher and then leave at the end of the day and then go do my campaign stuff. Um, but with COVID, I wasn't able to do any of that. And so I started thinking, well, wow, maybe I should you know, try to work for Mark Kelly's campaign or Joe Biden's mm-hmm. campaign. And, you know, um, I'm already doing work to, to reach communities that they can't right. reach. And, but then would I not be able to promote myself if I'm promoting this other candidate? Mm. Is that ethical? Like, I don't, I don't know what the gray area is there. And then I realized, well, I'm already doing work for them. I'm doing work for them by promoting this information for voter registration and early voting. Mm -hmm. And my primary numbers um, showed that I was able to bring out a particular percentage of first-time voters Mm. or infrequent voters Mm. that, frankly, the other campaigns couldn't reach. So I was doing something extremely different. And Mm. I decided to... Um, va- honor my values and pay <laughs> indigenous yes. uh, indigenous work yes. <laughs> by taking a small salary. Mm-hmm. And at first, I started taking a thousand dollars and uh, every bi biweekly, so every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then we realized because we were really concerned about whether or not we could sustain it, we were we were worried about money, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we realized when a little bit more money started coming in that I was paying myself below $15 an hour. And at minimum, mm-hmm. you know, that is something that we valued within the campaign of $15 an hour right. Right. and a working living wage, right? And so, or I wouldn't say living wage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I think it should be higher than that. I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that $15 an hour was the absolute minimum I should be paying myself. And mm-hmm. so then I, I reached it up to uh, just a little bit above 15, uh, 15 and some change and was paying myself biweekly. And so my opponent, my Republican opponent in the general election, when he saw my campaign finance reports, mm. he decided to criticize me for that publicly. Mm -hmm. At the time, he had less than 400 Facebook followers. And I had about (laughs) 6,000. I had (laughs) 6,000. And so I really honestly had the option of ignoring it and pretending I didn't Mm -hmm. see it or whatever. But I felt like it was an attack on uh, working class people. And I felt like it was extremely classist. Yes. Um, and so, and, and also an attack on my integrity. Yeah, definitely. And so I wrote a, um, a response to this and, and really bringing up that, you know, if we want to 
if we want to see the different kinds of representation that we're always saying we want, we have to invest Mm -hmm. in it. We have to put money towards it. And, you know, that is me paying myself for labor that I'm doing. I'm not just sitting around. I'm not taking a double paycheck. This is because of need. (laughs) Um, And so I did that. And within 24 hours, we raised over $22,000. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Because Pima County agreed with me that we need to um, value the work of uh, black and right. brown labor. You showed them haters. <laughs> <laughs> we really did. Oh, it was such a backfire for him. Uh, and he ended up deleting mm. the post. Uh, it took him a while. It took him a couple days, but he deleted the post. And then it attracted a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, interviews from, from journalists. A lot of people contacted us about this. There was like four or five stories that ran about this mm-hmm. issue uh, and you know, he then said, "Well, I don't want to talk about that." <laughs> Just put you his know, foot in his well, mouth. You brought it up, yeah. man. He has to face the consequences. Yeah, but it, but it really, yeah, but it really highlights that so many working class people are um, unable to run mm-hmm. for office because they're trying to take care of their basic yeah. needs, and in order to run for office, you have to have. Uh, you have to have some type of support structure underneath you to do that uh, because it is very expensive. It's very time consuming. Um, it's very exhausting. And, you know, if at the end of the day, you can't put food on the table or you can't keep your lights on, you're not going to be successful. And so I asked my community for help and my community came right. through. Yeah, I love I love the <laughs> reciprocity in that. Um, and I think that what I really appreciate about you and your transparency about that aspect of running for a local office like this is that in doing so, you're illuminating the process for working class people who don't even contemplate running, you know, and I think the fact that your opponent initially thought that that this was going to be a sick burn just shows how, how insulated in his like rich person bubble he is that he thought that that was an insult you never even once thought oh perhaps she's paying herself because she doesn't already have a trust fund (laughs) to fund this campaign the rainy day fund as they say um yeah and we and we keep seeing this theme over and over of old rich Mm. white men who run um and if we think about just systems of oppression in general, we're going to think, of course, that those are the people that are most likely to be able to retire. Mm-hmm. They're the mm-hmm. people who are most with a retirement fund, who have yeah. gone through with a retirement fund. Though Those are the people that have are most likely to have gone through the academic mm-hmm. system. They're the people who are more likely yeah. to have these, these higher level jobs with you know, the ability to have a retirement fund and, and those types of things. Meanwhile, um, both my parents are retired and neither of them, through not because of anything negative or because they didn't believe in me or they're not proud of me, but neither of my parents made donations to my mm-hmm. campaign. So we really think about that generational um, impact and, and what it means to come from poverty. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about that and we talk about our, our representation, if we constantly have people who only have the means uh, that, you know, they've been given or handed or um, this generational wealth, and we don't have people um, who are struggling, people who understand what it means to um you know, have to pay for a stamp and worry about the cost right? or have to pay for parking if they need to go downtown to fill out this paperwork and worry about the cost um, or how much it's going to cost them for a bus ticket to get to where they need to go in order to do a, um, a voting related yeah. task and worry about that cost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, if we're only concerned with with the people who who have this wealth and who who have not had this struggle, we're going to get the same type of representation over and over and over where people are not concerned about 
the issues of the most vulnerable in our community. Yeah, definitely. And I think even your, you know, the things that we've discussed on this podcast, I think just already illuminate the benefits of having a working class county recorder. Be, like, you know, I don't think anybody else was thinking about transient populations, about registering them, you know, and as you say, the Tohonotum Reservation, everyone who lives on it and works on it has been neglected for a long time. So right. uh, I think we're already yeah. seeing the benefits of your candidacy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, when I first started getting involved with um, the Democratic Party, one of the things that I did was I went to a training and I had a question for one of the trainers afterwards about where to drop off my voter registration forms that I had completed because I was already doing mm-hmm. work. I was already doing that work in the community. They had they were putting a really big emphasis on dropping off the forms at the, at the Democratic Party headquarters, which was on the east side. I primarily spent the majority of my mm. time on the west end of Tucson or the northwest uh, Tucson where I live. And so in between there, mm-hmm. uh, downtown is, you know, Congress and the recorder's office. And so I had always dropped off voter registration forms directly to the recorder's office. And so I, I asked the question, like, do I have to drop them off at the, at, at the party headquarters? Is that a preference? And they were, you know, I was going back and forth with this trainer and it was basically like, oh no, it's a convenience. Like, oh, well, that's not convenient for me. And so we were having this conversation and then right. I finally explained you know, I do the majority of my voter registration in the Thonautham community, but I ride a shuttle and my shuttle, you mm-hmm. know, the stop is on the west side. So that is closest to me. And then she goes, oh, oh, I understand. Yes, you can directly take them. We don't, you know, we're not taking any data from any of this. I'm like, Okay, great. That was my question. But <sighs> she said, yeah, oh, you do voter registration on the reservation. I didn't think anybody, I didn't know what she goes, I didn't think anybody needed to because I thought everybody got registered when they signed up for food stamps. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) She didn't think that anybody needed to get registered to vote because everybody signed up when they got food stamps. That's what she said to me. And after my jaw hit the ground, um, and I mean, I was furious because number one, not, not everybody is on food stamps, right. number right. one. But number two, even if they were, you still need voter education. You still need yeah. all of this additional also, information. I wasn't I wasn't aware that once you receive welfare, you're automatically registered to vote. You're not. So it's so. Oh, yeah. I was like, that sounds like a great policy to me, but I have never heard of such a thing. So I asked about it. I said, where is that policy? And it turned into this whole thing. And it was like, oh, no, it's a it's it's a thing that it was one tribe who who did that if you were seeking tribal benefits, which was a whole separate thing. Like if you were asking for, oh, I see. you know, assistance yeah. with child care through your tribe, but it was only one tribe and it, and it wasn't the Thonautham mm-hmm. Nation. It was actually the Pasquayaki Nation. And so the Pasquayaki tribe, pardon me. Mm. And so, you know, the, these assumptions mm-hmm. um, about what services were being um, offered was just really abundantly clear that even the people with best intentions um, were completely, because of their ignorance of, of this whole community, were leaving out outreach for an entire population of people. Mm-hmm. Can you explain really quickly what the, you first said Pasquayaki Nation and then you corrected yourself and said tribe. Oh, sure. What is the difference between the two? Is that like demarcating which tribes made had co- contracts over land with the U.S. government, or what is the difference? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I just try to honor whatever the tribe calls themselves. Okay, got it. And so the Thonautham Nation uh, calls themselves the Thonautham Nation. I often use the word tribe to 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 kind of describe. Um, what that means, because people understand the word tribe, but maybe don't understand the word nation. Um, but mm-hmm. the Pasquayaki tribe, their official name is the Pasquayaki tribe. And so mm-hmm. the Thonautham Nation is 
their official, the Thonotham Nation. <laughs> so I just okay, try to honor. It. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, there, there, there's absolutely no difference there. I just try to use the most accurate. And I sometimes will say nation because I'm from the Thonotham Nation. It's more in my lexicon, I guess. But uh, there are 22 distinct tribal nations within Arizona. Right. There are 21 that are considered Arizona tribes. Looney okay. Pueblo has land holdings here. We always try to like give them a shout out. Like they have land here. We're gonna we're gonna include them in this 22. Uh, but so that's mm-hmm. sometimes why you might hear a difference between 22 yeah. and 21. Uh, there's 22 distinct tribal nations, but 21 federally recognized tribes. Um, but I also, you know especially when we're talking about like federal recognition, federally recognized, if you break that down, whether the government sees Mm -hmm. an indigenous population as actually indigenous, it's kind of arbitrary. Right. Right. Yeah. And And pretty preposterous that they would be the arbiters of that anyway. Totally. And when we thought, when we talk about like, so we just passed Thanksgiving, one of the most famous tribes uh, that, that encountered the pilgrims, the Wampanoag uh, tribe, mm-hmm. they didn't get federally recognized until about, I want to say like 15 years ago. Wow. And under the Trump administration, they actually lost their recognition. What? So the is this related famous... to the 1619 project and his, his, his uproar about that? I, I, I have, I actually have no idea what, what this the whole situation I will do further research on this but so far what I've followed is that Trump hates the 1619 project and is you know I think part of in his hellbent on like 1776 is when America started that's the only year that's relevant to anything and the Wampanoag tribe was the first tribe that encountered what like the pilgrims right and so is I just wondered if that was connected or right. he does a lot of bad things. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the, well, there, yeah, there's, there's over 500, wow. there's over 500, 500 distinct tribal nations in the country. Yeah. So for me to know like what for legislation sure. impacts sure. one of the yeah. Eastern tribes, like, that's just not as, you know, it's just not in my knowledge base for this, for this moment. But I'm I'm always interested because, you know, things mm-hmm. that are happening um, in within Indian country, meaning all nations, all mm-hmm. tribal nations within the country, um, you know, impacts okay. all of us. I'll look more and into so this. I'm loosely aware, but I I don't know the specifics. But but that's what I that's what I I think mm-hmm. about when we talk about like federal recognition and and things like that. And really, I talk a lot about people are really kind of confused on like maybe the difference between Native American and Indigenous, or like they kind of struggle with those terms. And so Indigenous just mm-hmm. means first on the land. Um, without regard to border, really. Mm-hmm. Native American is mm-hmm. specific to the United States. And then a lot of times people ask me, well, what do you right. refer to yourself as? And I usually refer to my tribe, <laughs> which is the Thonotham Nation. And so when we talk mm-hmm. about the distinction that I just earned, which is the first Native American to hold an elected countywide office. Mm-hmm. Um, Congratulations, Native- by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I'm using the general term of Native American because I am a card-carrying member of a Native American tribe. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, that, I really appreciate that distinction um, because these are those are terms that are used interchangeably sometimes and sometimes inappropriately. So, so. yeah. Well, I think you know people are are very con- confused. But when we talk about like indigenous, Adelita Grijalva was also she also won her election within Pima County, so she's also going to hold a P- Pima County wide seat. But she's an indigenous woman you know, coming from Latino descent, but she is not a member of a federally recognized Mm -hmm. tribe. Right. Right. So there's, so there is a distinction. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. 
I wanted to ask about what it was like growing up in your hometown where the closest grocery store, post office, and public library were all an hour away. Could you tell me how to pronounce the town? Uh, so the community that I'm from, it's it's very much not a town. It's a, it's okay. very teeny tiny. Um, okay. And there's actually two pronunciations. I usually okay. say bisen mo'o, which is the way that you say it okay. in my language, bisen mo'o. Bison mm-hmm. means bison, and mo'o means head, okay. so I'm from the community of Buffalo Head. Nobody ever says in English, but but what happened, and, and this mm-hmm. is interesting, and this is part of an issue that is impacted by voter registration. When ADOT, Arizona Department of Transportation, came through and they needed to name roads or name communities, they found out, oh, you know, Casinamo, mm. Bison Mo'o. They didn't know how to spell it, so they anglicized and they changed it to Pisinamo. And right. so now there are two separate spellings with two separate um, pronunciations. <laughs> oh, no. um, but if you look on a map, okay. you'll see P-I-S-I-N-E-M-O. Sometimes, and sometimes it's slightly, it's changed maybe an E or to an I or something. But anytime mm-hmm. I say it, I'm saying it in the traditional way, Pisinamo, Buffalo Head. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> this is cool. Pissin Mo. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to know how growing up in that area that was so far from these kind of quintessential government services that we think about. I mean, not a gro- it's not a grocery store, but the post office and the public library in particular, how that influenced your decision to become a public recorder. <laughs> um, well, I, when, you know, when I was living there, I never really realized how much there was an absence of those things. The majority of the books that I got my hands on were through the elementary school. And also we had a a library in our community, but there was a fire one year and they, we, you know, after they put the fire out, there was all these books and some of them water damaged and they allowed people to just come and take the books because there was nowhere else to put them. And so a lot of the books that I owned growing up came from this fire. You know, they're like some of them waterlogged, mm-hmm. some some of them ruined forever, some of them just permanent smell of smoke. But, you know, I oh, didn't wow. realize how much of an issue that was until I became an adult and was realizing these lack of services that are that are that weren't mm-hmm. available. So within the community of cells which is at the heart of the Thonauta Nation. But again, Thonauta Nation is the size of Connecticut. So even for to go from Bismol to the cells is an hour drive. And there is one tribally run um, library there now. Um, but the majority of the building mm-hmm. has been overtaken by by office spaces. The one-stop program is there and an education program. But this is all funded through our tribe. And so the, the area for books and for, you know, when, when people think about libraries, they only think about books. But a lot of times there are important programs that are run through the library that promote reading, promote literacy, um, but also provide other services right. like job hunting, um, you know, resume writing or mm-hmm, um, other types of work community mm-hmm. uh, and workspace. And so those have been significantly impacted uh, by this lack of space, right. which is always a lack mm-hmm. of funding. Um, and so I really, yeah, um, it wasn't until a few years ago, um, I started, I've been writing and I, I write op-eds right. and I wanted to write an op-ed about the lack of libraries and just, you know, my my interactions with literacy, which have to do with a, a you know burning down library and hauling books from the burnt library, and just like the fir- you know the I the first time that I ever got to come to a bookstore. Mm-hmm for a luxury <laughs> after you know having driven two and a half hours from from my my community all the way into Tucson you usually have to go grocery shopping you have to go to the hardware store you know you have to there are places you have to go for you to go to a bookstore is is a luxury you know and so but the first time being able to go right. into a place and, and pick out books and buy books and and things like that and 
Uh, mm-hmm. I've just always been a really big fan of the library system. And so I wanted to know right. why, why is there no live, why is there no publicly funded Pima County Library within the Thanatha Nation, which is again the size of Connecticut? Why is there no structure there? And so I went to a board meeting and I, I went there to ask mm-hmm. questions. And one of the first things it was, uh, I, you know, I was an educator at the time, so it was over my winter break and that they had this meeting. And so they were going around the room and they were all talking to each other. And they said, well, we want to reach out to communities that we haven't reached out to, but we don't know how to identify those communities. And I'm sitting around listening to them talk about reaching out to communities they're not serving. And I had this SpongeBob moment where, you know, you just kind of slowly like raise raise your hand uh awkwardly (laughs) just wait to be called on and you know I started talking about you know the community that I come from and and talking about you know there's no services there There, there's a there's a public library in South Tucson or a couple in South Tucson and then Ajo Arizona (laughs) And in between that is this land structure the size of Connecticut, and there's nothing. So, you know, how how does one go about getting a library in this area? And so right. I started asking these kinds of questions, and they were able to provide a, a mobile library within a couple of weeks right. of, of me going to that meeting. Me just simply raising my hand like SpongeBob. in the middle of this meeting you know that I had looked up it was public information and you know I I just wanted to hear what they had to say and I showed up and I spoke one time and speaking up that one time resulted in my community getting a mobile yeah I'm sorry a mobile library Mm. and I just thought wow that is powerful Um, and it's not that Pima County library system didn't want to provide services. It's that they didn't know how to connect. They didn't know who to connect with. They didn't know there was a need. And so I always think about my interactions as, or I I used to think of it as like, well, Mm -hmm. everything that I know, everybody knows is common knowledge. Of course, everybody understands this, but really they don't. And so when I start talking about, you know, my house being, you know, to the left of the big tree, it's finally, people are finally able to, to paint a picture of, of that, the complexity of that issue. And so, you know, it's, it's really helping people understand. And if people don't know and they're not there and they're not from there or not from those places or they're not hearing regularly from people within Mm -hmm. that community or those communities, there's no way that we're ever going to make that change. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I think you show how there's so much to be done in local politics, even though, you know, every four years we get in this frenzy over the presidential election, which as we've lived for the past four years is obviously very impactful as well. But there's also so much um, of the th- really the, the day-to-day things, the things that can really improve quality of life are, are done, you know, through the local level, through local politics. And right. yeah, I, I just really appreciate you you highlighting that. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I thought was really a big learning moment for me is when I first started getting involved into in political spaces, I always kind of assumed that if you encountered a, a candidate or an elected that you could simply give them your issue. Like I could tell you all about this issue that I'm having in my community and then you'll fix it, right? And mm-hmm. I would meet these electeds or these these candidates or whatever, and they would genuinely care about what I was talking about. And they might even talk about it in some other way or area. But really, they had their own issue that they so, – so it was like they would put it into their back pocket as they held their issue in their hands. And they're going to move forward with mm-hmm. their issue. And so what I realized mm-hmm. is – that if you ever want to see some type of change, 
you have to carry your own issue and you have to be in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're not, mm-hmm. those are going to continue to be back pocket. You know, that might, they might whip it out every once in a while and like show people what your issue is. They might, they might tuck it away. They might care about it, but they also might not. And we have to stop mm-hmm. relying on um, this hope that other people are going to fix things for us. Um, because that's mm-hmm. not necessarily what's happening. We have to do that change ourselves. Yeah. And if that means you sitting on a board, you know, something as as small as a, a library board or showing up to their meetings, you don't even have to be a board member. Just be in the room as these people are talking about whatever the issue is. That is so much power. And that is where so much of this this type of work happen. And so I would encourage if anybody is interested, (laughs) radio stations, libraries, um, political organizations, uh, women's foundations, anything, anything that sparks your interest, LGBTQ office um, uh, groups, anything like that, start going to their meetings. Right. Yeah, it, I definitely agree. It it always starts local with local organizations around you, and every day is a day that you can get involved. And kind of relatedly, I wanted you to ask you about founding Indivisible Tohono and the work that you all did when you were on that project. Yes, so um, Indivisible Tohono we formed shortly after Trump was inaugurated. And um, what happened was around that time, we were seeing this increase in xenophobic rhetoric that was going around about the border wall. The Thawna Autumn Nation Mm, is a community that our traditional lands extend into Mexico. And we're a community that we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. Literally. Literally. <laughs> so there are there are communities or pueblos um, south of the border um, with tribal members who, you know, people who speak the Thanatham language and Spanish um, and don't speak English or uh, only speak Autham um, or, you know, whatever the situation is, um, who are still members of our tribe, who are still community, who are still family, um, but they're divided by this, you know, random in, in, invisible line it used to be an invisible line in the dirt and so when trump started talking about um the building of a of a pedestrian wall which is right now there's a vehicle barrier um which means like three feet tall. yeah which means that vehicles cannot drive through um in those areas in the border but you know, people and animals still can cross. Um, yeah. But so what he wanted, well, he, what he is doing is building uh, a 30-foot wall, um, right. continuous, that does not allow for people or animals um, to go back and forth. And so there was a lot of talk and concern and fear um, within the community at that time. And so we were, we began talking about, you know, what would happen? What, what's going to happen when these tractors start rolling through? Because, you know, that's what it was sounding like and people were scared. And, you know, when we say that it's in people's backyards, we're literally talking, there are some places on our reservation where if you hit a baseball, too hard, you could accidentally hit it into Mexico. So, you know, this is really, really, this is literally people's backyards. And so when we're talking about what would happen and people Mm -hmm. started, you know, kind of rumblings, we're talking about Standing Rock, about, about the border wall being the next Standing Rock and the next stand against this, (laughs) against this xenophobia. Um, We were concerned. We we were concerned. Right. It really should have been. There was concern that, you know, if we had, people come out like that, like there was in Standing Rock, there, a couple of things happen. Number one, it's open up to strangers, strangers within the community. Um, you know, Standing Rock was kind of encountering some of those issues of like, uh, who was, who was mm. leading effort. Um, and then also right. you, you also have to recognize we you have 117 degree days and our people have learned how to right. live and thrive in these areas. Um, but 
you know, Greg from mm-hmm. Ohio <laughs> who comes down with his... <laughs> Not Greg from Ohio. Greg from Ohio <laughs> comes down with his, you know, one water bottle and, you know, forgets Ooh. his hat, you know. Yeah, didn't bring his sunscreen. <laughs> that's a that's literally a risk, right. um, you know, to all of those the people that were coming. And so we, uh, my group... Before we were even a group, we, we uh, formed a educational forum to find out what we could do on paper before we had to do things with our body. And how could we how could we stop this on paper? And so we started talking with experts and lawyers and, and everything and, and had an educational forum. And the thing that came up over and over and over was the lack of a voting block meaning the lack of, a, of a, enough people to make a significant political difference when voting. And when you learn more about how politics are, are you know, how, how, it's, how it actually works, mm-hmm. is politicians are influenced by whether or not they can get back into office, to whether or not they can get reelected or not, mm-hmm. um, whether they can get into another office or not. And so some, sometimes the political decisions that they make are based on public pressure. And that's why we're, we're seeing so much of that and so much of this stalemate happening in certain areas because people are worried about getting reelected. And so um, in order to, to be a significant voting block. You have to get people registered to vote and you have to show evidence that they will turn out to actually vote. And so um, Indivisible Thano, my grassroots community organization, started providing opportunities for education and civic engagement for members of our tribe. Um, And while we started doing that, we started entering political spaces in non-Indigenous areas um, and really learning and what I like to call infiltrating (laughs) Um, until this opportunity came around and (laughs) now here we are. That's really, that's really amazing. So you're very involved in local democratic politics. Obviously, as you've just shared, you were the president of the Progressive Democrats of Southern Arizona. And uh, even though I think we had a really great election outcome for Arizona in terms of going blue. We got Mark Kelly and weed is decriminalized and who would have thought that we would be here? (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, what future do you see for Arizona in terms of staying blue and enacting progressive policies? And also what, how do you define progressive? What does that mean to you? No, progressive to me really is, is about being inclusive and intersectional. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really complex um, distinction, but I'm thinking about, I kind of shy away from using the word radical change. And at the same time, um, it's radical change, but really radical, I think has a bad rap and it's more practical. Than, I think Trump is giving anything. it a bad rap, but like <laughs> I, I still identify as a radical political thinker because to me, radical means getting to the root of the issue. And, right. you, know, I, you know, like I think that is what you're doing in your role as county recorder. You are identifying the root causes of native disenfranchisement. Um, and so... Yeah, I, I hope Trump leaves and like all his fucking right. ideas leave. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> right. It's it's difficult though because it's it's interesting to hear people who call themselves progressives who maybe think in a mainstream way. Like that's why I had to ask you what you meant, because there's a lot of people that use that term that where I'm like, uh, you have Hillary Clinton politics. <laughs> I know. It's so frustrating, right? Right. And and so I'm I'm always thinking about about policy decisions that impact mm-hmm. our most marginalized communities. And the and and really the acknowledgement that we make these communities most vulnerable. I think that's really important to know. It's not that we're, um, you know, simply oh, simply helping this poor population. No, we continue to set up the policies that make right. people poor, and that is something that I think is really really important in acknowledging and and something that. 
um, progressives, specifically true progressives, are looking towards those issues and trying to figure out a way how to not make our, how, how to take our community out of these vulnerable situations and give them the opportunity to live and thrive. And, you know, that is, you know, I'm, I'm not satisfied with something like a living wage. I want a thriving wage. I don't want people, you know, surviving off the crumbs. That's not fair. In these conversations about about student loan debt, but also free public um, higher education, mm-hmm. thinking about how much we're investing in education and work programs, uh, all of those types of things, um, healthcare, and you know, mental healthcare being a part of that, all of those things are interrelated and. Unless we're addressing all of them, we're still not setting up conditions for our most vulnerable community members. I totally agree. I think, you know, any kind of change that we make needs to be holistic in order to actually be effective. I wanted to go back into about your point about the voting block, because w- would you agree that the Tone Odom votes helped Biden secure Arizona? Oh, Definitely. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, and yet I, the Democratic Party does not respect Indigenous contributions or, I, I think, mean, Black, Indigenous, people of color contributions. Right. <laughs> so this has been something that, um, especially with my involvement with the Democratic Party for the past four years, I have been, um, and I would get up in front of a group of Democratic, you know, party members, maybe 140 at my Legislative District 9 meetings, and I would talk about my reluctance to have joined the Democratic Party. Um, prior to this, I was an, I was an independent, um, and not an yeah. independent who voted Republican. Um, I always <laughs> <Right>. voted Democratic, <laughs> but I really had a hard time identifying as a Democrat, and I, and I, and I still struggle with it. I still really, really yeah, struggle with it same. because they're not giving I, us anything. <laughs> but but because of my involvement um, and the involvement of my uh, of Indivisible Thano and other members, um, the, uh, the resurgence of a, a Native American caucus, which I'm the vice chair of, mm. um, and the 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 Democratic Party actually having a full time permanent Native American outreach coordinator position um, statewide. Mm-hmm. These are baby steps that have been made that have been really impactful. One of the things, like, for example, um, they provided me with a, or they didn't provide it for me. They chose to run an ad with me and my three languages that I represent. English, Optum, and Spanish. And they had a trilingual billboard up for the, you know, for the very first time that I've ever heard or seen. Yes. And, you know, like that type of act, yeah, it's that visibility was a really huge thing for, for my community to see. And huge. to see, you know, vote yeah. all Democrats down the ballot. Um, and that type of wording where, you know, that hasn't been done. Mm-hmm. The Biden-Harris bus um, did make a stop on the Thanatham Nation, which was really cool. There was about three, two to 300 people um, there, all trying mm-hmm. to maintain their social distancing. Some people just stayed in their cars. Um, but for it to come, you know, like I said, the size of Connecticut, and it's the one mm. location within that whole area that they could have come to, that showing that type of interaction and that attention, you know, the did they come at the very last week before the elections? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anybody of significance on the bus? No. Um, but did they come? Yes. You know, and so seeing those types no of No shade to the were, people on the bus. <laughs> no, see, well, no, no. It was literally a guy with a camera and like the bus driver. <laughs> like, and I, the guy with the camera, you know, he like set up microphones and stuff like that. And then um, like the chairman of my nation and vice chair and the chairman of the district we were in, they all spoke. And then I, because I was there, they invited me to speak also. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that wasn't... You know, that we didn't see like the, 
Filipino chair, Tom Perez, who had been in Tucson um, a couple weeks before, you know, he wasn't on the bus and, you know, there wasn't any elected officials on the bus or, or anything like that. But, but the bus itself came and they brought materials, they brought Native Americans for Biden signs and things like that, which is really, really cool and really significant. And people were energized by it. They were Mm. very moved by that. Mm. Um, And so that even, you know, even that type of attention, um, I think is is significant because significant because it shows a use of these resources at a t- at a critical time within the in the election, right? Because Trump certainly didn't send a bus, you know, he didn't he isn't trying to reach out or build a relationship with Native communities, no, no. Um, and so that type of thing is very you know very significant. But it is baby steps and it is hard, um, you know, when you're talking about hiring one Native American outreach coordinator for Arizona. But there's 22 distinct tribal nations there's 22, and yeah. the, the, right. for the entire state. Quite a task. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. how does that work? Um, or one Native American outreach coordinator for the country. Um, and there oh, no. are 500 plus tribes. How, how does that, you right. know compute and, and it doesn't quite but it's a start it's a foot in the door and um i appreciate that and at the same time it remained very critical um about the lack of investment <laughs> yeah well i know that there should be so many more resources and investment made in the tone of nation and in the all the indigenous people and black indigenous people of color that brought Biden his win. And I really hope that the administration listens to what border residents are saying and listens to the people that elected him and fix the crisis of the border that Trump created. I, again, needing to, you know, think about the, the root causes, right? We have to go back further than Trump. Definitely. You know, those vehicle barriers went up under the Obama uh, administration Mm -hmm. and they were, you know, there was, uh, legislation passed under Bush and Clinton, and mm-hmm. you know that yeah. impacts migration and immigration and uh, all of those types of issues that impact Indigenous people. Because we're talking about Indigenous people coming to our borders, right? Right. That is an Indigenous issue, right? And so, really thinking about about what that history is, um, you know, is really important, and it's. You know, I'm I'm very eager to see what uh, President-elect Biden does um, in his term, um, but we have to continue to advocate uh, for those community members. Definitely. For that population. Definitely. Well, Gabriella, I've had you on the podcast for about an hour and don't want to take up too much of your time because your duties <laughs> await. Uh, <laughs> just wanted to, yeah, thank you and hope to have you back on the podcast again um, so we can check in about all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. Bye, everyone. Bye.